Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. We're on hiatus right now. And while we're off having fun at the beach, we'd like to bring you a few of our favorite episodes. This one was clearly one of the top for me. It's episode 97 with Jamie Calvin, the journalist and human rights activist from Chicago, founder of the Invisible Institute. He has been a pioneer in all things transparency in policing, especially, but not only in Chicago. I hope you enjoy hearing this again. It was one of my favorites. Chicago has seen police scandals for decades, from torturing suspects into confessions to the Laquan McDonald murder and cover-up. Our guest has combined journalism and human rights work to spur police reform. Has it worked? And what lies ahead for a city awash in homicides and distrust of police? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and professional explainer of all things in our messy and difficult criminal justice system. Also really super glad to still have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Listeners to Criminal Injustice know that I'm a longtime observer of the city of Chicago and its police department, having grown up there. So it's no surprise that we've done a number of episodes on the successive waves of police issues in Chicago. All the way back to episode 11 in the second season, my interview with Pulitzer Prize winner Maurice Posley on his many pieces exposing wrongful convictions. Episode 72 with writer Burl Fallbaum on the case of Alton Logan, and episode 83, most recently with the journalist Steve Mills on the Lieutenant John Burge police torture scandal and its legacy, and then any number of bonus episodes on news and events in Chicago as they have developed. So when the city of Chicago and the world finally saw the dash cam video of the shooting of a young man named Laquan McDonald, 13 months after he was killed by Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke, people were flabbergasted. I mean, even in Chicago, where it takes a lot to shock people on these issues anymore, nothing we saw lined up with Van Dyke's report that McDonald threatened him with a knife or the reports of other Chicago police officers who were present and backed Van Dyke's statement up. Instead, it seemed to show a murder. McDonald was shot as he moved away from Van Dyke, the threat, if there was any, decreasing with his every step. On October 5th, 2018, the trial of Van Dyke ended in a guilty verdict, guilty of second-degree murder. Here's the audio of that moment captured in an article posted by the Washington Post. Take a listen. It's a tilting point right now. Holding police accountable for uh, for basically conducting their jobs with the integrity that they took an oath for. So now we're going to have, going forward, police thinking twice about being trigger happy. Police thinking twice about being 
aggressive and brutalizing suspects simply because they had the power to. Guilty on conspiracy. Van Dyke. Guilty. Guilty on conspiracy. Guilty. What it means to a black mother on the south side, it means that you can't kill our children with impunity. That they need to understand that daily use of force is not the first step. That's what it means to me. As the verdict was announced, Chicago was closing in on a consent decree, a court-mandated and agreed-upon set of structural changes and reforms for the police department. And the city would be electing a new mayor, with Rahm Emanuel abandoning any attempt at re-election to a third term, due in some significant part to the difficulties created by the McDonald case and the mayor's own failure to come to grips with the well-known issues in the police department before that, before it was too late. But as much as the Van Dyke-McDonald murder verdict may represent a victory for justice in that case, it's less clear if the verdict or the consent decree or new city leadership will result in any real change. Because to fundamentally change things in Chicago, to alter the way the police have always operated with seeming impunity when something goes wrong, to increase the trust of people in the police, to have people understand what is happening to a degree that that, that allows them to demand accountability, it will take something more. It will take transparency. People have to know what's going on when police and citizens encounter each other in traffic stops, in arrests, in stops and frisks, in every setting. They have to be able to see the patterns of police actions overall in, for example, all of the stops and frisks in the city or in their neighborhood. And they must know what happens when police are accused of misconduct. Are they disciplined? What were the consequences? Does the department send a message overall that misconduct won't be tolerated? Or do they ignore it, sweep it under the rug? Can citizens who think they have been mistreated get some measure of justice when they complain? If there is one person who's been on the forefront of the struggle for transparency in Chicago with the police department, it's our guest today. He's arguably done more to expose what goes on on the ground between police and those they serve, particularly with communities of color, than anyone else in the city. He's unquestionably led the way in revealing to the public what the police department does or does not do about misconduct. We'll hear that story, and he'll tell us where he thinks the city and the police department are now and what the future might bring. Jamie Calvin is a writer and human rights activist in Chicago. His work has appeared in many publications. Now often, you see it at The Intercept. He is the executive director and one of the founders of The Invisible Institute, which describes itself as a, quote, journalism production company on the south side of Chicago with a mission to, again quoting, enhance the capacity of citizens to hold public institutions accountable. Close quote. The Institute does this with, among other tools, investigative reporting, civil rights litigation, curating of public information, and human rights documentation. 
Mr. Calvin has been deeply involved in the treatment of Chicago's minority communities for decades, working in two of the city's most impoverished public housing projects as a journalist and activist. He later participated in two landmark lawsuits over the secrecy of police records, and we're going to talk about them. And he's been a major figure in all the recent reporting about the murder of Laquan McDonald. Jamie Calvin's peers have recognized his work with the Polk Award for Local Reporting in 2015, the Ridenauer 2016 Courage Prize, and the 2017 Hillman Prize for Web Journalism. Jamie Calvin, welcome to Criminal Injustice. It's good to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. Your career, I know, goes way, way back uh, uh, writing uh, to finishing the monumental work of your father, Harry Calvin Jr. I was fascinated to, uh, to learn this because he was a giant on the faculty of the University of Chicago's law school. Uh, uh, you finished his book on the First Amendment. You wrote some about Robert Bork's uh, views of free speech way back in the day. But let's start our discussion here with uh, your work involving Chicago public housing and how it led you to work about the city's police. Uh, tell us about that work first in the 1990s as a resident consultant to Stateway Gardens in Chicago. What's Stateway Gardens? Where was it? What was that like? And what were you brought in to do there? Yeah, so so Stateway Gardens was a high-rise public housing development since demolished. There was part of an extraordinary concentration of public housing on the south side of Chicago, um, referred to as the South State Street Corridor. Um, well over three miles of public housing um, in a kind of continuous strip. The, it was, as of the time I began working at Stateway Gardens, got involved at Stateway Gardens, um, that was the biggest concentration of public housing in the country and the biggest concentration of poverty. There was actually a a social scientist who, on the basis of the 1990 census, designated Stateway Gardens as the single poorest neighborhood in the United States, um, you know, using census tracts to determine that. I'm sure it had lots of competition um, in rural as well as urban America, but it was an incredibly impoverished and abandoned place. Um, and really was concentrated. Your use of that word, I think, is accurate because people were just stacked in these high-rises where everybody but everybody was so poor. Yeah, I mean, it was this extraordinary environment, and it was it was a kind of city within the city. You know, you ask about my involvement there, and I uh, you know, I've, my entire career I've been a writer, but I've had a kind of parallel career as, uh, I guess, a sort of citizen activist and uh, was involved in various initiatives around the South Side and kept being pulled more and more towards this extraordinary world of public housing. You know, when we talk about um, intense urban poverty, Social scientists and journalists often describe these communities as isolated, you know, as if poor people kind of pulled up stakes and moved away from the rest of us. But in fact, what was remarkable in Chicago, and I think you could also extend this to other uh, American cities, is that poverty existed in the central city. You know, the most intense poverty was in the central city. And it was a very kind of intimate landscape with these incredible social distances. So people couldn't go anywhere in those years um, on expressways that functioned as kind of moats around these developments without seeing the high-rises. 
but at the same time, they experience them as being on the other side of the moon. So I, I always insist on describing these as abandoned communities. You know, isolation um, doesn't capture the relational element. These were communities abandoned by public and private institutions, and at the same time, extraordinarily interesting places because under conditions of abandonment, people adapt, and there are all sorts of, um, you know, once one passed over the threshold of just being intimidated by the environment, um, you know, it proved in my experience, and I spent well over a decade immersed in that in that world, um, you know, it proved to be revelatory and, you know, in many ways deeply hospitable. And I ended up with multiple roles, um, you know. Yeah, I, what were your roles? What did yeah, you do? So I, I, you know, initially I wasn't there in the role of a, a journalist or reporter. I was working on another book in the writerly part of my life. And I, you know, was very interested in testing a set of propositions about about nonviolence. This was a pretty embattled place. And um, two major gangs of the time, the Gangster Disciples and Black Disciples, kind of controlled the buildings. Uh, the major form of employment was in the criminal economy, you know, the drug trade. And so I w developed over time an organization we called the Neighborhood Conservation Corps that hired out of the street gang, you know, guys out of the um, the street gangs and um, individuals coming out of prison would, uh, you know, approach me and l trying to create employment alternatives um, for those who wanted to move in that direction, um, but have them also be in the community. And so we ended up doing a lot of construction-related work and um, ended up with major contracts to trash out the buildings which had been abandoned by the public housing authority. Um, we got very good at doing demolition in the service of, of uh, renovation. So in the broader neighborhood, you know, as, as uh, properties were being, were being renovated, and so I had this team of former gang uh, members, some of them, you know, kind of mid-level warlords before they moved in this direction. And it was a it was a really compelling experience. At the same time, I um, was asked to act as a consultant to the resident council, the elected resident council. It's an elected body? Elected body and kind of a weird... You know, this was something that HUD created in public housing that was kind of a colonial form of leadership, um, like a colonial leadership. System. Yeah. But in the case of Stateway, there was really inspired resident leadership, um, dear, dear friends to this day. And so I ended up kind of being at the table with them, in, and these were all women, um, in negotiations with uh, HUD, with the public housing authority, with the police ultimately with private developers. Um, and it was in that setting that I, you know, after four or five years of immersion, I f had finished a book project, and I began um, with my wife, Patricia Evans, a documentary photographer, and a young, a young man, very young then, David Eads, who had sought me out, who now works for ProPublica, the investigative journalism um, 
education. Sure. Yeah, um, and David had a whole set of of um, skills that I didn't have in terms of web development, and we started a sort of human rights documentation project that we called the View from the Ground. Human rights documentation. What does that mean? You know, it means it it, it means that. Um, there were extraordinary um, circumstances, events, um, uh, abuses occurring in this environment that were not being reported by conventional media. And I modeled the work we did then less on, you know, I mean, I was an established writer and wrote widely for uh, any number of publications, but I actually modeled our work less on um, you know, magazine, conventional magazine articles than great human rights documentation around the world, which, and I would distinguish it from a lot of other reporting and a lot of other policy analysis in that the touchstone of human rights reporting, as I understand it and practice it, is um, the injury to individual people. I mean, you know, the notion that the, this kind of core principle, core um, basis for the reporting is the perception that larger structures of inequality and injustice are enforced ultimately by particular blows from particular hands against particular bodies. It's nothing abstract about it. And those the, the individuals injured by state violence and, and abandonment um, are not case studies and you know it starts with a full regard for the lived experience of the folks in the community affected so you know we began this process and um wrote wrote about a lot of things you know about the physical conditions in the building about what was beginning to gain momentum a kind of forced relocation process as demolition of the buildings began um but more and more I gravitated towards writing about patterns of police abuse that were just so immediate and visceral in that setting. Now, Chicago's had police scandals, police problems, and so forth for years. You were certainly aware of that, I'm, I know, as a long-term resident. Um, what made the, the things you saw so particularly uh, visceral that they began to pull you in that direction, uh, the, uh, the direction of focusing that uh, reporting on police? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I think, I think of course, you, I'm a lifetime Chicagoan. Everybody, you know, we go from scandal to scandal and, and usually in response to scandals. This is what I've come to think of less as reform and more as scandal management. You know, a Blue Ribbon Commission is appointed. That was the old Mayor Daly's specialty, wasn't it? The it Blue Ribbon Daly's. Commission. Both, both Daly's, both <laughs> Daly 1 and Daly 2. Right. And the, uh, you know, and scandal management takes the form of appointing a commission and disbanding a corrupt unit and reconstituting it under another name and just sort of waiting for people's attention to move elsewhere. And so, you know, I've been part of that all my life, and uh, these cycles of, of um, you know, exposures, scandals, and then this kind of faux reform process. What, what being in public housing, you know, public housing developments, there are the, a handful of um, institutions in urban America where you can actually 
see structural racism it's, where it's not abstract, where, you know, it's visceral. And, a, you know, an urban emergency room is one of those places. Um, you know, criminal courthouses, certainly in Chicago, um, you know, you just you spend a day in courtrooms and the criminal courts and you just sort of see a, a kind of apartheid justice system in operation. And public housing was like that. And it was particularly true in the last chapter of public housing, the last decade, when not only was the community abandoned and, you know, not only did the residents have this kind of beyond the pale social status, um, really not even regarded as citizens, these were regarded as kind of criminal places, um, but everybody knew that the buildings were ultimately going to be demolished. And so what happened under those circumstances is that, uh, you know, a significant number of the most abusive police officers gravitated to that assignment. Um, they they gravitated they to impunity. it. And the impunity derived not only from the, you know, woeful deficiencies of supervisory and disciplinary systems, and I've written a great deal about that, but it really ultimately derived from the social status of their victims. So in that setting, in those years, officers could just do whatever. So whatever kind of bent of a of a, a abusive officer, um, you know, feeding on the drug trade in a predatory way. Uh, there were guys who were outright racist within their job descriptions. Um, others who behaved, you know, vilely towards women. Um, you, you could. You know, do what you wanted. So you could do it and I, get away with it in that setting. It you sounds could just like get away with it. Nobody cared. It was the and it, and for me and to this day, it remains something that that shocks me. And I I feel that on one hand, privilege isn't quite the right word, but I feel grateful that I've had in my experience such massive exposure to that. And it's really a function of radical inequality you know when you when we as a society designate um, particular categories of people as just being less than citizens or presumptively criminal then we allow cruel and abusive individuals in uniform to toy with them and to prey on them and i saw that and i saw it every day and i saw it in big ways and i saw it in small ways you know, I investigated, I mean, at one extreme, it's just the the utter rudeness and disrespect, you know, endless use of the N-word, um, you know, a kind of casual contempt for people. And at, at a greater extreme, you know, I investigated um, a homicide by the police, a rape by the police, um, as well as massive corruption, because you have this uh, open air, these open air drug markets where uh, actually residents used to joke about them as the the policeman's ATM machine. Because they just go get cash out of them. They could just go take money off, uh, you know, one of the young men laboring in this kind of uh, criminal sweatshop and say, okay, you know, you just bailed out um, um, and not make an arrest. And that, so, you know, and there were, I've written extensively more recently about um, teams of gang tactical officers who were integral parts of the drug trade. So, you know, what was so powerful on the ground and documenting this kind of stuff for years is that 
there's a very useful word in human rights and legal discourse, impunity, lack of, of, of fear. No of consequences. Or discipline. Mm-hmm. I saw, you know, and I've long known that word, but before it was an active part of my vocabulary, I saw on a daily basis what impunity looks like, you know, in a kind of in-your-face, visceral, immediate way. You know, how people, not not by no means, you know, everybody or most officers, hmm. but a mm-hmm. significant subset of officers will behave if they have absolute impunity. And so you write about this in the online publication that was started there, a view, the View from the Ground, and that leads to a lawsuit, the lawsuit of Bond versus Utreris. Talk about how that came so, about. So, I, the other thing I should mention is for, you know, since about 2000, um, I've had an incredibly satisfying and productive um, collaboration with civil rights lawyers and students at the University of Chicago Law School, who, you know, uh, an attorney there, Craig Futterman, became interested in my work, common friend, introduced us, and um, we began to work together. And he and his students would come down to the office I occupied at, at Stateway Gardens, which was a five-bedroom unit uh, where we were squatters, essentially, um, uh-huh. drug dealers outside the door who would, you know, usher people in like doormen. And uh, so law students would come down and, and work there. And over time, we brought to this, utter, you know, in this utterly legally disenfranchised community, we brought six federal civil rights suits on behalf of of residents and uh, the ultimate one, Bon v. Utreris, was um, a so-called Monell suit, which uh, won't go into the details, but, you know, it, if a judge allows it, it enables a plaintiff to argue that not only the defendant officers, you know, charged with particular abuses, but the, the supervisory personnel, the police department as such, the city as such, are also... Um, liable for um, knowing that their systems were broken and not fixing them. So that that final suit, the bond suit, was a Monell suit, and it grew out of a question that formed for me, for Futterman, for his students, and really has driven my work ever since those years. Having had this massive direct personal, you know, experience registered on my nerve endings, of the abuse on the ground and establishing really that 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 reality existed then the question formed okay this 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 is real this exists what set of institutional conditions would have to exist for what we're observing from day to day and what is the lived experience of folks in this abandoned community what how would the world have to be organized for this to be the case. And so that really drove the litigation and has driven a lot of of my reporting and my colleagues' reporting since, is trying to understand the larger institutional ecosystem in which this, this sort of abuse occurs. So in the Bond case, the attorneys, um, you know, given the, the larger freedom for the discovery process that the Monell suit allowed, 
asked for things like uh, from the city in the course of civil discovery for things like a list of police officers over a five-year period with more than 10 complaints. Right. Right, because you're looking at the institutional setting, you're uh, you're making the argument that you're entitled to take an institutional uh, uh, set of uh, of actions, a, a institutional set of attacks in the litigation, and that that can only happen in a Monell suit. But once it starts, things get very different than litigating against one officer about one incident. Right. So we had all, yeah, and I should be careful, you know, we didn't have it because, um, you know, uh, discovery commonly, almost universally, takes place under what's called a protective order. Right. That restricts, so the parties can exchange information Mm -hmm. with one another but can't make it public. Um, So the the lawyers had access to this. The plaintiff's lawyers had access, uh, but I didn't, you know. Oh, I see what you're. Yeah, I see the distinction. Go ahead. So, and we maintained that, you know, partly because we're under endless scrutiny from and challenged by the city. I had, you know, during the uh, while the bond suit was, um, you know, pending, uh, the city subpoenaed all of my notes. Yeah, that's right. They went after you. Yeah, they went after me, and I think that, you know it was to discredit my reporting rather than. I mean, there was. You know, nobody in the city was doing this kind of reporting, and I've always felt like they just were kind of offended by the idea that I existed. <laughs> but it took the form of a subpoena, which they and they came hard. You know, I've had other experiences like this, but in that case, it was the city law office. It lasted; the process lasted for about eighteen months, and they put a lot of resources into trying to have me held in contempt for refusing on First Amendment grounds to give up my my sources and and my sources for my reporting unlike the usual kind of whistleblower confidentiality case where it's a washington reporter with a you know a sure somebody in the bureaucracy who's been leaking right. documents those are kind of the classic cases sure my case was you know folks in an impoverished community and they have a lot to lose if they're exposed Gang members drug mm-hmm. dealers you know um uh or just you know impoverished public housing. regular folks yeah yeah just folks. and I, so it was inconceivable that i would i would um give up the identities of sources in any case that you know that played itself out and then the bond suit um moved towards settlement and we're now talking 2006 i think seven mm-hmm. in that range and um with the settlement of the suit the contempt, the threat of contempt for me um, evaporated, and but then you decided to take another direction. Yeah, and so I decided. I mean, I've often joked that at that point I went after their notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I intervened. I intervened in federal court, and um, and the judge in the case, uh, you know, a really splendid individual is uh, Judge Joan Joan Lefko who, um, I mean, this is a digression, but a point worth making, whose husband and mother were murdered by a deranged individual who had been, uh, you know, party in some case before her. Oh, I do remember um, that. That's a terrible thing. In the course of the bond thing. case. Mm-hmm. You know, her, 
um, this crazy guy was laying in wait for her at her home, um, and it was her mother and husband who returned, not her, and he killed them. And um, Judge Lefko, you know, understandably left the bench for four or five months, um, and then returned and handled this case. Um, and um, you know, I, I have just the highest personal regard for her. And when um, when I intervened, you know, we were we just thought, well, let's try this. Nobody's ever, to our knowledge, challenged a protective order. And so you were intervening was, to get the records that had been yeah, held. I intervened on mm-hmm. behalf of the public in my role as a journalist, making the argument that the protective order withheld public information from the public. All right, so the, and, the, the information that you, came to you during the bond suit. In the bond, yeah. Right. And so all the material that Futterman and his colleagues had been able to, to sort of access, I was claiming was, was public. And, you know, we're, you know, uh, these litigation strategies often extend over years and years. And yes. we're used to kind of chipping away. And somewhat to our amazement, Judge Lefko completely embraced our argument and eloquently. Um, and so then this just completely blew up, you know, something that had started at Stateway Gardens with my kind of insurgent reporting in those years. Stud Circle, who was a friend, described me as a guerrilla journalist, which I've always sort of liked. <laughs> Embraced that, yes. <laughs> that was what we, you know, that was, it came from the margins. It came from this, from the margins. And after Judge Lefko ruled, this became, you know, a huge case in Chicago. The city immediately moved to um, stay her her order pending appeal, and and then you know every any number of major press organizations joined my position, and half the um, city's aldermen too, and a majority of the city council joined my position. So we went up to the Seventh Circuit, um, you know, really now as a much more mainstream kind of um, effort to, to force government transparency and accountability. And it was a couple of years after Judge Lefko ruled that we finally got a decision from the Seventh Circuit. And it was intensely intense. Uh, you know, she was overruled on the grounds that she should never have allowed me to intervene in the first place. Um, and it was just an intensely anti-press decision. Um, but there was a footnote in the decision, um, and once we had kind of absorbed the shock uh-huh. of uh, having the door slammed in our face to that degree, we sort of thought through a strategy. The footnote said something to the effect that nothing, in our opinion, should be construed to um, suggest that Calvin can't seek the same documents under the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. Oh, ho. Oh. <laughs> so we we took them up on I don't think they regarded it as an invitation but we did and with a really concerted effort that extended over 7 years and I had a just all-star team of um civil rights lawyers from several firms including uh, the law school clinic um you know we waged that campaign under Illinois FOIA and ultimately in March of 2014 uh, prevailed in the Illinois Appellate Court, 
and I, you know, I was then the plaintiff, so Calvin versus Chicago is the, the name of the decision. And um, it held uh, in really sweeping, unqualified terms that apart from reasonable redaction of personal information, you know, an officer's home address or social security number, um, documents bearing on allegations of police misconduct are public information in Illinois. That was incredible because you not only, I mean, you lose the first case, um, but that's only about the documents in Utreris. This ruling, the second one from the Illinois courts, is far broader. It says that any records, any documents that have to do with police misconduct, those are presumptively public. And that has huge, far-reaching implications. Huge implications. And and actually, you know, it's been an interesting history because once that decision came down, the Fraternal Order of Police immediately came up with a range of legal counterattacks that kept us in court for for a couple of years. There was limited release of information, but um, while the issues raised by the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, were pending, there was a temporary injunction against the city for making a full release of all this information to us. In retrospect, I mean, that was frustrating at the time. In retrospect, it actually consolidated the precedent. You know, because court and ultimately the appellate court had to come back to this question under challenge and came up with the same answer and kind of put an exclamation point behind it. So we really have, a, you know, a solid um, kind of watershed decision in Illinois that um, doesn't exist elsewhere. You know, I'm not sure what the circum- – I, I do know in Pennsylvania I've spoken there – um, that's not it ain't the same here, I can tell yeah, you that. And, but also major, major jurisdictions. New York is incredibly backward on this. Oh, yes. Uh, California, only slightly better. And so this is a big deal. And I think there, there are a few other states that have comparable transparency, but I don't know of one with a major urban area and hence, you know, the, the kind of issues of policing that we have in Chicago. So it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, you know, um, that word watershed gets misused a lot of times, I think, but this one clearly is one of those. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Jamie Calvin of the Invisible Institute. He's the executive director. We're talking about police transparency in Chicago. We'll be right back. Stay with us. David Harris with you on Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Jamie Calvin, journalist, human rights activist, and executive director of the Invisible Institute in Chicago. Jamie, before the break, we were talking about the landmark watershed ruling by the Illinois courts that declared that all records about police misconduct with just a few personal details may be removed, that those are public. And that's what allows you and your colleagues at the Invisible Institute in Chicago to create something called the Citizens Police Data Project. Talk about that. So, you know, once the decision came down in the Calvin case, 
we were actually confronted. I was particularly, because I, I like to travel light, <laughs> you know, organizationally. And, um, you know, so the Invisible Institute was really a loose set of collaborative relationships and um, not, you know. A, a not a real institute. Not a real institute. And it actually began as a joke, you know, when we began publishing the View from the Ground around 2000, um, when we did the first first uh, publication of a report, I said as a kind of a mild sneer towards academia and think tanks and stuff that it was it was being published under the auspices of the Invisible Institute. <laughs> just made it and up. People loved the name, and so the name just kind of followed me around for years <laughs> and became associated <laughs> with um, you know various collaborative efforts. But then once the decision came down. Um, we were really faced with a uh, uh, inflection point, <clears throat> a moment. And the way I thought of it then and, and continue to is that <clears throat> the court had established a principle of transparency. This, this category of materials belonged to the public. Um, and it was not self-executing. You know, it's like saying we're free because we have the First Amendment. Well, we're free if we exercise the First Amendment. Right. And so the question for us became how to operationalize transparency. You know, how to take this principle and really make this information legible, accessible, interesting, and useful to multiple constituencies. Right. What What do you do with it to make it worthwhile? What do you do with it? And and I think this is a broad question. You know, in one sense, we're, we live um, awash in a kind of tsunami of information about everything. But, you know, how does information become knowledge? And how does it become a tool for people? Um, and how, you know, you noted before that we understand our mission as enhancing the capacity of citizens to hold institutions accountable. Well, how do we, you know, how do we curate information of this nature in a way that achieves that objective or contributes to that objective? So that was the problematic. And what we, you know, have done with significant investment of every kind of resource, uh, certainly, you know, it costs a lot of money to do this, but, but also just sustained attention and design intelligence and imagination and technological expertise, we created something called the Citizens Police Police Data Project, the Citizens Police Data Project, CPDP, that is a public-facing database containing um, all of this disciplinary information organized by officer, by officer name. And um, it has proved to have incredible I mean, really impact beyond our aspirations when we when we created it. And this um, must be of because of the way that people can use it. Yeah, people. So a whole range. I mean, within a within forty eight hours of our launch in twenty fifteen, the um, I mean, this was of a, of a limited body of data. It's since been massively expanded. Um, you know, within forty eight hours, any journalist writing about uh, a police officer in Chicago would consult the database and often link to it 
to you know give a sense of that officer's disciplinary history. Within a week, any civil rights lawyer um, you know filing a, a complaint of police abuse would attach an exhibit drawn from from the database. Uh, we learned we learned that um, you know when you, you can't tell if somebody just um, goes straight to the database where they've come from, but if they come from another site, you can there are analytics that can identify. You can uh, see the trail of where they came from. Yeah. Yeah, and within the first couple of weeks of rolling out the database. Um, we had some 3,000 visitors who came from uh, uh, a robust and quite rabid police blog in Chicago called Second City Cop. Oh, I'm a reader, yeah. And we had, you know, uh, um, uh, we had a very steady traffic from Second City Cop. Uh, you know, and, and officers, in my experience, are, are tremendous sort of gossips. So I think people were not just looking up themselves, but <laughs> looking up other other <laughs> officers. I actually had a police commander recently retired tell me, uh, "Boy, I wish I'd had this when I was, um, you know, commander of the 13th district, because it has information that wasn't accessible to me." That um, is an incredible statement. Think about that for a minute. I mean, that the the command officer could not get to disciplinary information on his own people. And this is a tool from outside that would have allowed that. That is incredible. Well, you know, and part of the reason there is, again, all the ways in which the union contract just sort of gums things up in terms of um, supervision and and discipline. I recently had, we uh, through, a co- through a colleague, a colleague recently reported that in connection with an investigative piece, she'd been interviewing a, a police, um, a recent, um, you know, somebody who'd recently joined the police force who said, hey, you know, do you know about this incredible, said to my colleague, this incredible database, CPDP, um, I use it to, to detect which officers I don't want to be assigned to work with. There's <laughs> <laughs> a young police officer trying to navigate his career. Um, so it, you know, it got, and then the other thing that happened that just, you know, was propulsive for the database when we first, when we first launched it is maybe 10 days after the launch. And we'd gotten incredible coverage from obviously locally, but also the New York times and, and others had, had covered it. We, um, the video was released in the Laquan McDonald case. You know, Another watershed the long, moment, the yeah. The long simmering case of the 17-year-old boy shot 16 times, and we now can definitively say murdered by a police officer because the verdict came down a couple of weeks ago. Um, and imme- and the, as soon as the video came out, the, the state's attorney moved to charge the officer. The officer was named publicly Officer Jason Van Dyke, and everybody in the world went to the database to look at his his disciplinary history. Yeah, that just shows you. You're, and that's when you know it becomes the source. So let's, if we can, shift a little bit towards that McDonald case and the the murder, the second degree murder verdict. Uh, there in Chicago uh, just a couple of weeks before we're recording this. Uh, I'd like to just get your comment. What did you think about it? I know you observed the entire trial. Um, It's kind of been hailed as a a victory for individual justice, of course, but 
what do you think it's going to change, if anything? What, what, what do we see ahead with this now having happened? Yeah, so I should first say, you know, I, I um, broke the Laquan McDonald case, you know, in terms of bringing it to public visibility. So I Actually, first, I should have said that. My apologies. Yeah, no, I just, you know, it's just a, it, it, because it, it bears on my perspective on this moment. You know, I first heard the name Laquan McDonald maybe a week, between a week and 10 days after the murder from a whistleblower in law enforcement who, um, you know, conveyed through through my colleague Craig Futterman the information that um, the killing that had been, uh, you know, the shooting that had been reported as police officer self-defense by Chicago media a week before was in fact horrific. Um, the whistleblower passed on the information that there was um, police video footage, dash camera video footage of the incident, and also provided information that enabled me to track down a civilian witness. So I, you know, I've been on this story for four years and um, never, ever could have imagined um, in the course of that reporting journey a moment such as occurred a couple of weeks ago um, when a verdict was rendered, um, uh, you know, that this was second-degree murder. And additionally, um, there were 16 counts of aggravated battery with a firearm. For all the 16 shots. So each, each bullet was a crime. And when the clerk of the court, an African-American woman, stood up in a hushed courtroom to read that verdict. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary moment, Um, you know, and to read each of those counts, each of those 16 counts above and beyond the second-degree murder charge. So, you know, this was an, and this was also happening concurrent with um, Judge Kavanaugh moving towards confirmation. So at a moment, you know, in a moment when it feels like our legal system is, and the rule of law is, is to put it generously, in very precarious um, condition. Yes. This was an instance of, you know, the the legal system working, and um, and all the more moving because the the judges in this case were twelve citizens of, of Cook County. And right, the jury. So it was powerful, powerful, powerful moment. And I think had immense symbolic importance in in the city. Um, having said that Beyond symbolism, what do you think? Yeah, so I mean first I let me say a little bit more about symbolism in that if this had gone the other way, you know, if it had been an acquittal or a hung jury I don't think you know there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of talk and, and actual, you know, quite massive uh, preparations across the city made for that possibility, and and there was an expectation of of the possibility of riots and um, civil disorder. I personally think that that was that whole dynamic was a kind of weird combination of prudence and racism. Um, and, but I think the real danger was not not violence, but despair. 
that people would have just despaired of any possibility of meaningful change and reform. It'd be just like everything they've seen for so long. Yeah, but just think about it. If what was depicted in that video that you know so many people have now seen was legal, was within regulation. You know, and what was depicted is what witnesses, civilian witnesses, described as an execution of a child. If that's legal, then the police have all the power. They have absolute power. There's no curb. There's and and so the verdict, you know, symbolically and in fact, stands for for something um, really significant in the city, and allows people to entertain the possibility that you know, however skeptical they might be that there could be meaningful change. And that's really a necessary condition for going forward with the long slog of really changing systems. This was a finding of one officer being guilty, and it's guilty of murder. And what's fascinating is the Laquan McDonald case, um, you know, once the video came out and there were other revelations about the case, was a complete political implosion in Chicago. Oh, yeah. The the DA who you mentioned before who had held back on charging Van Dyke, she's gone. She Emmanuel is gone. Was fired this, a of <laughs> Gary McCarthy gone right away. Gary right? was fired. You know, and, and, um, and the DOJ, the Department of Justice, intervened and did uh, the most extensive um, – you know, uh, report it's ever done on a, uh, over a period of 13 months, the deepest dive it's ever done into a police department, uh, a process that was derailed by, as were so many things in American life, by the Trump, um, Trump election. But so, you know, so the, the, the important point about the, the, the incident is it gave rise to an ongoing set of processes and a public discourse in Chicago that is hugely focused on systemic conditions and, and really ultimately focused on foundational racism in law enforcement and criminal justice institutions. So it's this broad, ongoing process. The, the trial of Officer Van Dyke was as narrow as it could be. So none of that systemic stuff came in to the trial at all. Right. The the judge stopped it. He said, look, this is about this incident and this incident only. And, you know, and and there was a lot of questioning of that. Um, um, You know, and I was agnostic going into the trial. He stripped it down to a murder trial. Did individual X murder individual Y? Um, and so any conversation about race was excluded. There was no discussion of Officer Van Dyke's prior disciplinary history, you know, which showed a certain tendency to, to violence and to race, you know, to excessive force and to racist verbal abuse. None of that was, was brought in. So it was very, very narrow. The process was very, very narrowly focused. It was a you know, traditional murder case to that degree. The verdict that emerged from that entered back into the the broader discourse about systemic change. But you know, as as um, I said a moment ago, really for, for all its symbolic importance, it was only a finding that this officer broke the law. There's another trial coming um, in late November. This is the three officers who covered it up. 
three officers who were part of a much, much larger cover-up. So it's a little bit perplexing that it's only three officers charged. Um, but it, um, and, and I would even contest the word cover-up. And I think it's diagnostically important to sort of interrogate that word. And, you know, Mayor Emanuel, who on the eve of the trial announced that he would not run for a third term, um, you know, was the focus of tremendous animus in the city. People dislike him for a wide range of reasons. But um, when the Laquan McDonald um, earthquake happened, huge, um, he was a huge point of focus and the cover-up narrative took place, and um, and and I think you know I've said this um, on multiple occasions. I wish it were a cover-up. I truly wish it were a cover-up. Um, but I think that's a sentimental narrative. It, it wasn't a cover-up. This was standard operating procedure. Business as usual, in other words. This was yeah. This is a machinery. I think of it as the machinery that disappears black lives, and it had worked many, many times before. There was no reason to think it wouldn't work this time. All sorts of people knew their roles within that machinery, um, from officers on the scene who shooed away witnesses to the shooting, civilian witnesses, without taking statements or getting contact information, um, you know, to other officers who were there who, you know, and I have some sympathy for the officers. There were nine other officers present at the moment that Van Dyke opened fire. A couple of those officers had been with the young man for between five and ten minutes, had been right. official responders, mm-hmm. and had handled the situation beautifully, just like we would want them to. Right. Um, Van Dyke gets out of his car, within six seconds opens fire. Most of the most of the shots administered while the boy is lying on the ground, writhing in pain and presenting no threat. Those nine other officers looking on I have no difficulty imagining are just as appalled as as uh, you or I or any of your listeners would be. They then have to go back. They go back to the station house, and there's a meeting. And we now, and we'll learn more about the meetings that took place after, um, in which they're told by their superiors, okay, here's how we're going to handle this. Here's what you say. Here's what you say. You know, they orchestrate a set of consistent stories that reinforce the officer's argument that this was a justified shooting, that he was defending himself against um, against an imminent threat of bodily harm. And just think about that for a minute. I mean, you've just witnessed an atrocity, and then within your job description, you're required to, your de facto job description, to lie about what you've seen. Yeah, here's how we're going to handle this. Nothing to see here, members of the public. It was all by the book. Yeah. And so I think that, that that's what we're now confronted with, is if, it, you know, if, it's a, if it's a cover-up in the classic Nixonian sense of conspiracy, then it's a handful of bad actors who conspired together. They knew they did something wrong. They compounded the wrong by suppressing or destroying information and and by you know lying to the public so you vote them out of office you prosecute them as appropriate that's not actually what we're dealing with you know we're dealing with a machinery and um, and a culture 
that needs to be changed, and there's no single transformative remedy. It's a matter of lots of small interventions and um, small reforms that, you know, aren't that satisfying in themselves, but in the aggregate, that's how systems and cultures change. Um, and that's really the challenge for the city going forward. Yeah, I want to ask about that because I, I, I think you're the person who, who's, who has seen so much. You have a right to have an opinion about whether this can change, whether we'll have a better Chicago Police Department in five years. What do you think? What would some of those small interventions be that would add up and how optimistic are you? So I'm – let me put it this way. I don't so much see it in terms of optimism or pessimism as opportunity. Um, you know, I think we have a historic, unprecedented opportunity for really um, meaningful, fundamental, enduring reform in Chicago. And um, I think we have to – the we means government, civil society, obviously the police. You know, we all need to elevate our games to be to be worthy of this moment. But there's a significant opening, and I think that opening has gotten wider rather than narrower. It would have narrowed drastically had the Van Dyke, you know, Laquan McDonald murder um, verdict gone in a different direction. Yeah, I get it. But it's it's widening. We now have, through a set of innovative legal strategies, despite the abdication of the, the Justice Department, we're now at the verge in Chicago of having a consent decree entered, you know, essentially a, an agreement between the, the city and, in this case, the Illinois state's attorney. Right. Um, highly unusual. Usually those things were, were federal, but Lisa Madigan, your state attorney general who's going out of office, has stepped up and has become the other side of it. Right. And that actually was – she stepped in at a point after which a class action suit had been brought by civil rights lawyers, including folks we work with, and we participated in this doing data analysis in support of it. Um, the um, uh, There was a class action suit seeking, you know, with a spectrum of groups from Black Lives Matter organizations to the Urban League and the NAACP seeking a consent decree. And, you know, that got significant traction. Uh, The city sought to have the suit dismissed, and Lisa Madigan intervened in that context. So it's been a really fascinating um, procedural process, you know, legal process to get to this point. But now now we're essentially there. And the consent decree that's been drafted, and think of it as a blueprint for reform going forward, um, but, but with contractual force and with the enforcement hammer of a federal judge, and there will be a police monitor impo- appointed, uh-huh. uh, a team of sort of subject matter experts who will oversee and monitor different aspects of, of reform, you know, the the consent decree that's been drafted is far from perfect. You know, a lot of the provisions are kind of aspirational sure. and, and vague, but it has the potential to be a sort of living document going forward. Um, and I think it depends. Everything, everything positive that has happened since 
the tragedy of Laquan McDonald's um, unnecessary and immensely wasteful death, everything that's happened that has been positive in terms of reform has been the product of public pressure. It has been citizen action. It has been, you know, the civil rights bar. It's been the young activists in the street. It's been journalists. But, you know, it's been civil society has been driving this. And if I see a danger right now, it's that once the consent decree is entered and there are experts kind of overseeing this, and this danger would have existed had Trump not been elected and had the Department of Justice sort of stayed stayed engaged in Chicago. Sure. The danger is that, you know, folks will sort of relax, that the public will sort of relax and say, okay, it's now in the hands of the bureaucrats. Right, the, the professionals are in charge. Professionals we can, are in charge. Uh-huh, we can relax. That would be um, a terrible mistake. You know, I think we obviously can benefit from various kinds of expertise, but this has to remain a, a political process. It has to be driven by the communities most affected by unconstitutional policing. But if those conditions exist, I think we could see really significant reform. We won't see it, you know, overnight. There's nothing transformative that is available. And I think it's one of the it's one of the paradoxes of moments like this that I think of it in the context of the Me Too movement as well. You know, there are these times or the civil rights movement of the 60s when we events and great leadership and, you know, um, incidents like the Emmett Till case, the Laquan McDonald case that become these kind of portals for people's moral imaginations. There are times when we have this moral awakening and we see more clearly a set of structural harms and we see the gravity of those harms. Um, and how much damage they do from day to day. And at moments like that, I think there's a natural human impulse to want remedies that are commensurate with the harms. And they're not on the menu. Right. We have to create them. We, we have, have to, to insist them. on them. I often think about this in connection with Dr. King. You know, Dr. King's brilliance was in telling a story of fundamental social change that people could see themselves as part of and that became compellingly necessary to people at the level of their own identity, their personal identity, that they had to be be part of that. And there probably was no more dramatic moment than the ultimate Selma Selma march. Like the people you know, so on the bridge being attacked. On the bridge. So this huge historical drama with this eloquent person as sort of narrator of the drama. But if you think about what that was really about, it was about the Voting Rights Act. It was about the most granular stuff. It was about the poll tax. It was about various bars to full uh, enfranchisement, you know, literacy tests. And other right. And, and that's what police reform is like. You know, so we need to tell the larger compelling narrative that people have a sense of historic occasion and participation in, but we also need to keep our eye on the small incremental things that can be accomplished, you know, over time. And none of them are satisfying in the sense of no. huge transformative stuff, but it's, it's those, those smaller interventions taken together 
that begin to shift, a, a, you know, a very entrenched culture and create systems that, um, you know, are more reliable and accountable. Jamie Calvin is an award-winning journalist and human rights activist in Chicago. He is the executive director and one of the founders of the Invisible Institute. His work appears in The Intercept and other publications. We're going to put up links to the Invisible Institute and the Citizens Police Data Project on our website. You can see them there. Thanks so much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. It's been my pleasure. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from Cleveland.com, Court News Ohio, and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Stephen Jerome Moody of Cleveland. Many of us have certainly heard of the discovery process in litigation. The idea there is that when there is a lawsuit, the lawyers representing the parties go through a pretrial process of bringing out the facts of the case. They take depositions of the witness, sworn testimony, under oath, transcribed but not in court, in an office or a conference room to get the witness to commit to their stories. It's kind of a dry run for testifying in court under oath. The lawyers send each other interrogatories, questions on paper to be answered by the other side. They request that documents relevant to the case be produced. All of this is designed to discover the facts so that once the facts are known and sorted out, the parties know where they stand before they go into court and, the theory goes, perhaps they'll be more willing to settle. It is also an expensive process, what with lawyer time adding up by the hour, and one could see how that would make it tempting for some lawyers to abuse it, maybe try to make a case too expensive for the other side so the other side will settle. Of course, we don't know any lawyers like that. But then there's lawyer Moody. Moody in Cleveland was representing a client who had sued a prominent bank, For job discrimination, the bank was represented by a lawyer, a female lawyer, in Boston. The bank's lawyer served Moody with a set of interrogatories, some requests for documents, and sent a notice to conduct a deposition of lawyer Moody's client. Moody didn't respond at all. The bank's lawyer sent a second notice for the deposition, and she flew to Cleveland to conduct the deposition on the set date. Neither Moody nor his client showed up. Instead, Moody called the bank's lawyer after she was in Cleveland and waiting to depose the client and said he just couldn't make it and would have to reschedule. So the bank's lawyer makes a third request for the deposition. This time, lawyer Moody sits down with his client to prepare. They were actually going to do it. And this meeting gave lawyer Moody the opportunity to explain his uh, strategy to his client. He had been purposely gaming the discovery process. Here are a few of Lawyer Moody's choice nuggets. First, about the bank attorney's interrogatories and requests for documents. Quote, 
I completely ignored her ass for a few months, and then I made her file a motion to compel, and then I called her and said, oh yeah, I'll get them to you in two weeks, and then I completely ignored her ass again. About the defendant bank, quote, in this particular case, what I would do is, because we're fighting the bank, right, I would be F with this lawyer at this stage. Yeah. Close quote. About the bank's lawyer, quote, she's an arrogant bitch, okay? And, quote, I made that bitch fly into town, close quote, for the missed deposition. Ah, there was so much more choice language here, which we'll just spare you. So you're wondering, how do we know all of this? The client must have been taking some great notes. Well, no, the client had become suspicious of Lawyer Moody and all the delays, and the client recorded the whole conversation. Yeah. And that's how the conversation ended up with the Ohio Bar Disciplinary Authorities. So how did Lawyer Moody respond when confronted with these comments by those disciplinary authorities? Well, first, he said all those missed deadlines and so forth were inadvertent as he made a transition in how he organized his law practice. Then he said he was puffing, exaggerating, using hyperbole to build his client's confidence in him. And third, he said that in part of the conversation that was not recorded, he actually disavowed all the statements quoted here and so many others. Well, the bar authorities did not buy this, and neither did the Ohio Supreme Court, which said that Lawyer Moody's own statement to his client showed the actions were purposeful and not inadvertent. And the court observed that the idea that these statements would boost his client's confidence actually didn't work. The client, upset by what he heard, fired Lawyer Moody because of the comments. And all of it, the court said, called into question Moody's integrity. Whether the comments Moody made were actually true or not, quote, they raised questions about his integrity and his ability to conduct himself in a way that engenders respect for the law and the profession. Close quote. The upshot and indefinite suspension from practice. Ah, Lawyer Moody, it's a sad world, isn't it? You can't even trust your own client not to record you and rat you out. If you ever do get back to practice, a couple of pieces of unsolicited advice for you here. First, behave yourself. And second, if you find that a bit too difficult, don't brag about what an asshole you are. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you just call it in and ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. And give us some contact information for you. But we won't share that with anybody. Again, the number, 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. I'll be back with you next time. 
Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments. Or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389 or online criminalinjusticepodcast.com. We try to solve the problem of mass incarceration by eliminating mandatory sentences or by getting rid of cash bail. But what about a better method of providing criminal defense services? Could this cut prison and jail populations and secure public safety? A holistic model for criminal defense services. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.